Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 7 as we will study through the entire chapter today and we will do it on time as we study this interesting character by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And the problem with Melchizedek often is that people spend so much time trying to figure out who he is when he's actually not the whole point of this chapter. The whole point of this chapter and the whole point of the book of Hebrews, remember, is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And so the emphasis is not on Melchizedek, although we'll meet him today. The emphasis is on the ministry, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I know it's a little difficult for us here in the 21st century, uh, sitting in a warm church, enjoying the new covenant, understanding the fulfillment of prophecy. 330 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his first coming. And we have embraced him as our savior and we follow him as our Lord. It's a little hard for us sitting in here in the 21st century to connect with the audience that received Hebrews. A first century group of Jewish believers who came out of Judaism, which was God's will for their life. God's will for their life was to embrace Messiah. The whole point of Judaism was to bring about Messiah. It was, as we'll learn, the the law was our tutor. It was our teacher pointing us until faith came. And then once faith came, now our relationship is not with the law, but with the Lord. And so I appreciate and I can understand how bridging the gap between the audience of Hebrews can sometimes be difficult. Chapter seven is a little bit difficult, but I know that as we go through it, you'll begin to grasp the essence of what's being taught here to them and by application to us. So let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter six, because it's a bridge. Remember, in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, there was no chapter breaks or verse numbers. Those were added a few hundred years ago to help us. And they do help, don't they? You know, we we were able to say, turn to this chapter, to this verse. But those that received this letter didn't have any chapter breaks to it. They just read straight through. Not even any punctuation, periods or commas. It just read straight through. And so let's pick up because these are connected. This chapter break is a little unfortunate, but pick up in verse 19 where it says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, by which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Melchizedek, verse three, is without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made to be like the son of God, he remains a priest continually. Verse four. 
Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, verse 9, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Simple enough, right? Here's the point that is being made. The point that's being made as you're reading through this is that Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Remember the backdrop. We've been seeing this in the last couple of studies that Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than the old human priesthood. He's greater than the old covenant. Remember, he's the author, Paul, I believe, is making a case of the superiority of Jesus Christ to a group of people that highly valued the law, highly valued the old covenant, and highly valued Abraham. They actually believed, there was, a, there was a stream of teaching during that day that they believed Abraham was a perfect sinless man. And we know that's not the case. And so piece by piece now, Paul is saying, look, look at the order of Jesus Christ. How coming through the order of Melchizedek and not Aaron and Levi. Because the priesthood, now understand, when this was written, the temple's still there. And the process of religion is still taking place. So the incense, the priesthood, the sacrifices, uh, you know, the, the, the worship of the temple was very demonstrative. It, it was attractive to the eyes. It was attractive to the nose. So they left the formalism of religion and now are living by faith in Jesus Christ. And they're being tempted. They're, they're being tempted to leave the simplicity of Jesus Christ and go back to the formalism of, of religion. We can't forget that for a person to embrace Jesus Christ in the first century, for a Jewish person to embrace Jesus Christ in the first century meant that they literally lost everything. And you can't can't overemphasize that. They, They lost the formalism and the comfort of a religious experience. They lost their family because their family would write them off and accuse them of being a part of a cult. They would write them off and say, You're, you are no longer a part of this family because you've turned your back on God, which in reality they didn't. They just they, they stepped into the fulfillment of what God promised. And what Paul's trying to do is saying, if you go backwards, you're leaving the best. Jesus Christ fulfills it all. And he uses this man, mystery of a man, by the name of Melchizedek. Now, that's probably not his name. It's probably a title. Uh, It's not like Mr. Melchizedek. It's king of peace or king of righteousness. He is the king of Jerusalem. And while while he's introduced, most people in chapter 7 spend all of their time trying to figure out who he is. And the commentators and the teachers have really, it's narrowed down to two options. Number one, 
Many people believe that Melchizedek was just a man and a king of an ancient city that met Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, as we'll get. He was a man. Uh, and he's a mysterious man because we don't know his mom or his dad. We don't have his genealogy, which, remember, would be very important to the Jewish person. The other viewpoint is that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And you know there's compelling evidence on both sides. And so you might be curious, you go, Ed, well, who is he? Which one? And my answer to you is, I don't know. There's compelling evidence on either side. But my answer also would continue, it doesn't matter. Because the Bible is not about Melchizedek. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And we know who he is. And now Melchizedek plays a very important role in the life of Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ's priesthood. So here's the the issue. If if you were a first century Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, your family would come to you with, with, with criticisms. They would come to you with doubts. And one of the things they would say is, how can Jesus Christ be a high priest when he is not from the line of Aaron or Levi? He actually came from Judah. So how is it that how, you know, the priesthood would come through the family of Levi, but Jesus didn't come through the family of Levi? So how is it possible that he'd be a high priest? Chapter 7 answers that. He's not a high priest according to the human line of Levi. He's a high priest according to a new order that God established through Melchizedek. So let's go back to Genesis 14, and let's fill in some of the blanks here with this time that Abraham is met by Melchizedek. Those of you that remember in Genesis 14, Abraham had to go save and rescue his nephew Lot from the evils of Sodom. And he went and fought a battle. And it says in verse 17 now of Genesis chapter 14, it says, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Laomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was, so now we learn a little bit of Melchizedek, he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So that's where we're introduced to Melchizedek. He's actually mentioned three times. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He's also mentioned about a thousand years later in Psalm 110, as we'll get to there. And then another thousand or so years later in Hebrews. And so Melchizedek is this king that meets Abraham and blesses him after Abraham rescues Lot. And here's the key about Genesis 14 you need to understand. All of Genesis 14 happened before the Mosaic law. Abraham doesn't know anything about Moses, anything about Mount Sinai. Abraham knows nothing of the 10 commandments that are gonna be given or the laying out of what's gonna be given in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Mosaic law the law that institutes the worship in the temple. So Melchizedek, he comes and predates the law. This is all happening before the Mosaic law. The reason that's important is because 
the Jewish people are rooted in the Mosaic law. It is the guide for their life. And here, Melchizedek comes, he's a better priest, he's a better king, he is the greater of Abraham, and also notice he receives tithes. Now tithing and finances within a church, within a body of believers is unfortunately great controversy. Uh, And many will say, you know, we don't need to tithe anymore unto God because it was a part of the law and the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we can give if we want to give or not give if we don't want to give. But for those of you that might hold that view, understand something. The tithe predated the law. The idea of generously giving of what God has given to us predates the law. It's actually part of the relationship that a person has with God. And so to say, well, I don't need to tithe, and tithing literally, that word speaks of 10%. But tithing predated the law. By the time you got to the Mosaic law, the tithe or the giving of, of offerings and your giving of your tithe and offerings to the Lord was actually far greater than 10%. If you add up the things that that a Jewish person under the law was required to give, it's probably in the 30 to 35% of what they brought in, both of finances and and the grain and things of of their crops. And so I think it's important for us just to remember before we move on that giving is an important part of the Christian's life. That if if there's anyone on the earth that should be known as generous people, it would be followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, of course, gave us the model of generosity by giving himself. And so if you happen to have that viewpoint, well, you know, I don't tithe, I don't have to give because that's part of the law. You you don't have a full scope of what the Bible teaches about giving. And you can look at the New Testament, the New Testament, so you got the tithe here, 10% with Abraham giving to Melchizedek. And then you walk into the Mosaic law, which it kind of adds up to 30, 35%. Do you know the mandate of giving in the new covenant is actually even greater? The Bible says to give yourself a living sacrifice. And so that generosity is flowing. And one thing you've learned, some of you that have given, you know this to be true. You, you just are unable to outgive God. And the only way to, to have God refill your, to fill your hands is for them to be empty as you give. Second Corinthians chapter 8 is a great chapter for that. Uh, in verse uh, 7 it says, the summary of what he says, he, Paul writes to the church, In the new covenant, he says, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and even in your love for us, he says, abound in this grace. Giving is called a grace. He says, abound in giving too. Don't let it be said of your life that you held back when you had the means to give generously. So so he gets, he receives tithes from Abraham before the law. And, And there's a point being made here. So it's before the law, he's given tithes. He is, uh, Melchizedek is a priest before Levi, before Aaron, before Moses. And that's very important to the point that's being made. He says now, pick up in verse 11, back in Hebrews. Well, before we get there, verse 9, he he puts the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi in verse 9 as the priesthood through Levi He says he also received tithes, like he was inside the loins of Abraham, like potentially Levi's going to come from Abraham in the future. So even the the human priesthood was there at that time, and Abraham represented them. So keep that in mind in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there's also a change of the law, which in any good Jewish person would gasp at this statement. You see, God is unchanging, but his law changed. That's the ever-increasing revelation of God to himself, that the law, as you guys have learned before, I've taught this, has a definite beginning and a definite end, and it had a purpose, and we'll see that in a moment, but this would have been a gasp from them. And I love what Paul does, because many times as a pastor, as a teacher, you guys that are teachers, even as parents you do this, where you're anticipating as you're trying to instruct someone of all the questions that come up in their mind, so you can just answer their questions before they ask it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's like, wait a minute, what do we need Melchizedek for? We have the law. What do we need a new order for? God has given to us his law, and his law is perfect. It was given to us in its perfection. And yet, notice verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Melchizedek never offered a sacrifice in the temple. Never, it didn't exist. He served before the temple. He he served before the tabernacle. Notice verse 14. It's evident, now speaking of Jesus, that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. For it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment but according to the power of an endless life. Verse 17. For he who testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now if your Bible doesn't already have it, right down next to this Psalm 110. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 110 that we'll turn to in a minute, verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. And now this is a real key. Underline this, circle this, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Perfection does not come, or first let's state it in the past. Perfection did not come through the law, and you could say today perfection does not come through the law. No one is made perfect by the law. And so for those listening, tempted to go backwards, he's explaining to them this superior priesthood that supersedes and replaces the law. And you know, the, this desire to leave Jesus and a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, just being frustrated and not feeling like, you know, the pressure of your family or the pressure, outside pressures want you to leave the things of the Lord is a common, it's a common experience. It's not just the Hebrews in the first century. It dates back to the heart of man in the Garden of Eden. We have that pattern already in the Garden where Adam and Eve, now tainted by sin, chose to run away and hide, at least to attempt to. 
they no longer felt, I believe, that they could enjoy re relationship with God, and so now they recognize their nakedness, the Bible says, they recognize their sinfulness, and they feel ashamed and run away from God. This idea of wanting to run away from God has been with us from the very beginning. And you notice in our culture, in our society, in our generation, a lot of people are running from God. You can put it this way, a lot of people are running from God and they really aren't making any progress. And they run to a lot of things. Um, statistics show that alcohol use is increasing, is skyrocketing in our culture and around the world. Our, I should say not culture, I should say our generation. That drug use and the invention of new drugs to desensitize the pain and the sorrow and the hardship of life is sh shooting through the roof. Where God promises us a peace that passes all understanding and yet the pressures of life and the worries of life and the anxieties of life just cause people to run and run and run. People have been running away from God forever. And the answer is still the same. What you're seeking to run away from, the problem with running away is always that you take yourself and your problems with you. You find that it only complicates matters, makes things harder. You know, we call running away from God idolatry. And I believe it's important that we're reminded that idolatry is just not little statues. Although it's representative. That, that was the big deal in the Old Testament, remember? The prophets would say, you guys are making little idols, but they have eyes and can't see. They have ears and they can't hear. They have hands and they can't help you. You're carving little images that look like yourself. And they're helpless. And so we kind of look back on a civilization that, that, and a generation that, or even a religion that makes little idols and we're like, yeah, never that. But what are the idols in your life? What are the temptations in your life that have nothing to do with carving out a little statue? But when you think of idolatry, you know, a basic definition of idolatry is simply anything or anyone that replaces God in your life. But let me go a little bit deeper for you. Idolatry is what you run to to give you the sense of peace and comfort that can only come from God. A sense of peace and comfort. Where do you run when you're hurt? Where do you run when you're mad? Where do you run when you're anxious and worried, when doubts start to well? Where do you run if you run to anything or anyone other than God that's become an idol in your life, a replacement of the one true God. So unless we kind of point the finger at other generations, go, oh, you know, we don't make little statues, we're not into that, we don't have pictures on our wall that we worship. No, there's all kinds of sophisticated gods now today that you're feeling so overwhelmed that you think drunk being drunk will actually be better than what you're feeling right now. You're so overwhelmed in whatever circumstances that you're facing that you think that smoking that joint or snorting that line or even the progression of heroin and all of that, that's really going to give you the kind of joy and happiness and peace when you know it doesn't last forever and it only makes things worse. I think back in my own personal experience Every major stupid thing I did, major huge things, I was under the influence of something. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes not being under the influence of drugs or alcohol for sure, but it only got worse, not better. 
And so think of that as a believer in Jesus Christ, a born-again man, a born-again woman that says, God, you are not my sufficiency. I don't trust you right now. I can't take this anymore. I don't want to feel this anymore. And you run away. Because that gets lost in, that truth gets lost in the sense of, who's Melchizedek, Ed? And the Bible, although that's an interesting thing to study, and I encourage you, if you're really curious about it, spend some time. But that's actually not the question of chapter 7. The question of chapter 7 is, who do you believe Jesus Christ is? Because if you believe he is who he says he is, you won't go backwards. And even going backwards is kind of a, a weird concept for many people. The, the closest thing that I can relate this, this sense of what the Hebrews are going through would be those of you that were born and raised in a Roman Catholic home, in the Roman Catholic religion. And you went through all the formalities of Catholicism. And you did everything the priest told you to do. And you did everything because that's what your family was. And maybe you grew up in a family. I'm born a Catholic. I'm going to die a Catholic. And I'll live sort of like a Catholic when I feel like it the rest of my life. And that's just what, and so you go through all the formalism. And you find yourself in church on Easter or Christmas. And that, that's about it. Midnight mass perhaps. And then you are introduced to Jesus Christ and who he is. And you embrace him in relationship. And in that relationship, you decide, you know, I'm going to leave the Roman Catholic Church because the Bible teaches I don't need to go through a priest. I can come right to Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that he wants a relationship with me, that I can, I can have a personal connection to the God of all the universe. I don't need to go through all these things. As a matter of fact, most of these things aren't even in the Bible. And you have left Roman Catholicism behind, and yet the response of your family and friends is like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? You've left the church. And you're like, I, didn't, I actually didn't leave the church at all. I am the church. And you go, what do you mean? And you open up the Bible. You go, right here it says, all of us that believe in we're the church. And then you begin to explain to your family. But then they come with arguments. No, what about this? And what does that church teach? And, and they might even accuse you of being a part of a cult. Because what are you doing now? Reading the Bible and praying and worshiping God in freedom. That's about, for those of you that had that experience, that's about as close as I can get to what this looks like, where they have all this external pressure to try to pull them away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. And it is that simple. You might even feel a little guilty at times where you're like, is it really this simple? It is. It's actually simpler than simple. The idea of abiding and trusting, laying aside your idols and coming to God through Jesus Christ experiencing experiencing perfection even though we're sinful god is perfecting us through jesus christ now let's go over to psalm 110 then see this prophetic word in psalm 110 melchizedek now is mentioned again and he's quoted here in hebrews 7 so notice with me psalm 110 <clears throat> Pick up in verse 1. David is writing. David's writing this psalm. And he says, and you, you'll see the distinctions here. This is where understanding how your Bible's written will help you. You'll notice in verse 1, the first Lord that's mentioned is in all capital letters. Do you guys see that? That is always a reference in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, of a reference to Jehovah or Yahweh. Because we don't know exactly God's name because it's only in consonants 
YHVH, or YHWH, even some variation on that, the translators use the word Lord in capitals. So this is Jehovah said to my Lord. Notice those are L and then lowercase O-R-D. So David is saying, Jehovah, my Jehovah God, has spoken to my Lord, which is a reference to Messiah. Remember, if you were a follower of Judaism, you were looking for Messiah to come. You you were looking, you're waiting for the promised Messiah to come. David was in that place. And so he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jehovah shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. This is the father speaking to the son. It's a fascinating conversation within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Then he says in verse three, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauty of your holiness, from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth, and the Lord has sworn, Jehovah has sworn, and will not relent. You, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this was prophesied, this was another prophecy fulfilled by Jesus Christ, that he would not be a priest according to the human order of Levi or the Mosaic Covenant. Aaron and the Levites were a part of a system that was unable to make you or anyone perfect. The purpose of the law was not to perfect anyone. The law was holy, just, and good and had a purpose. Let me teach you that purpose. Go over to Galatians chapter three. This is super important because there are those today that will be pushing and pressuring you to go back to the Torah. They will say, you aren't a good follower of Christ if you don't follow the Torah, the law, if you're not a keeper of the law. And their voices are getting louder and louder today. Uh, They may be coming from that messianic Jewish perspective that you're not a real Christian because you're a Gentile and you've left your Jewish roots. You haven't left your Jewish roots. There would be no Christianity without your Jewish roots. There is no, but you're, for the, for the most part, we are Gentiles and we are not under the law. You should rejoice over that. We are not under the law. Neither were the Jewish believers of the first century. And this is why, notice what the Bible says. So Hebrews and Galatians are actually companion books so that if anyone ever comes to you and says, you've got to keep the law, you've got to be a Torah observer, you just open them right here to Galatians chapter three and you give them a simple Bible study and it couldn't be more clearer. And I'll show you, both Hebrews and Galatians couldn't be more clearer. So pick up with me chapter three, verse 20, um, let's say 22. No, let's go to 19, how about that? So couldn't be clear, listen to what the Bible says. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, now mark that word, till. The law was added because of transgressions until. So there's a time where it's not gonna be needed anymore. There's gonna be a time to make someone righteous for salvation. Not that it doesn't give us good precepts and doesn't reflect the character of God, but there's gonna come a time when when the seed comes, who is that seed? Say it out loud. Jesus, right? Should come that the promise was made It was appointed through angels, the hand of a mediator, because that's how Moses received it. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then, verse 21, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given that could have given life, then righteousness would have been given by the law. 
But the scriptures confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. Circle that word tutor and write next to it, teacher. The law is a teacher to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For as you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, the law was given because of transgressions to point out our sinfulness. Why? So that we would humble ourselves and come to God for forgiveness. The way that God provided that under the law was through the sacrificial system. You came to God through a priest and an animal sacrificed. And the high priest alone, one man, one time a year, would take, an, take the blood of an animal and spread it in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He would come in once a year and he would have to, he would have, to have three animals. One he'd sacrifice for himself because he was sinful. The second one he'd sacrifice for the people and he'd take that blood into the Holy of Holies. And the third he'd come out and lay hands on that goat, that scapegoat that he would lay hands on him, offer the sins of the people over him and then he would let the goat go and they'd, everyone would watch him run away. And that would be representative. It would be a picture of the sins being removed from the people. And I want you to see here, before we get back to Hebrews, in verse 24, the law was a tutor. And it can still be used that today. One of the ways to share the gospel is to reveal to people that they're guilty before God. And the law still works that way today. You and I look at our life in light of the law, just for, not even the whole law, just the Ten Commandments. We're going to fail at every point. Some, somewhere along the way, we're going to fail and we'll recognize, you know, we're not perfect before God. Why? Because the law doesn't make you perfect. It actually reveals your imperfections. The law, the Bible says, is like a mirror. And you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror. Can the mirror fix you? Yes or no? No, it just tells you, you need help. <laughs> and you agree. And you get in the shower, you comb your hair, you get ready, you agree. The mirror, you know, the best thing that you and I do in the morning is agree with the mirror. The best thing you and I do in life is agree with the Bible. It reveals that we need help and also reveals to us where to get help. And I don't want you to miss what this is saying because the law is equated to being a tutor. And that's a specific illustration for them because in the Greek homes, in the Greek and Roman homes of the day, the tutor was, had a duty to supervise young boys on behalf of their parents. And they trained them and, and basically parented them, helped them study, did their schoolwork, disciplined them until they were of the age where they didn't need a tutor anymore. And then they could move on. So with the timing of a tutor, notice what he says. The tutor was here to bring us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ makes the tutor not needed anymore to be right with God. Then verse 25 couldn't say it clearer. If anyone ever comes and tries to lay a trip of you on you about 
the law and how important it is for you to keep it and to, to be a student of the Torah as it is. And, and, and they may say, well, it's not for a means of righteousness. Well, no, it's for a means to point us back to Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. And if anyone ever tries to lay that trip on you, you take them to Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, and let them read it. But after faith has come, so let's just ask, has faith come? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ today? So this applies to you. After faith has come, there are no long, you are no longer under a tutor. Or the tutor represents the, say it out loud. I'm teaching you here something because I don't want you tripped up by some YouTube video or some guys go, oh, you need, you're missing out on something. You're not real Christians. You're Gentiles. And what you need is go back to your, Christ, your Jewish roots. Listen, you're no longer under a tutor. You're no longer under the law. Your faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient for your salvation. Don't misunderstand me. The value of the entirety of the Bible is still very valuable and instructive to us. And we'll study it verse by verse, the whole Bible. To know the law, you know, now you know, the, you know the value of the law of going through Leviticus helps you understand Hebrews. Because some of you are going through Hebrews and go, man, I don't know. I can't picture it. I don't know. I lost it. Melchizedek, I can't even say that. And you didn't know he was mentioned in Genesis. And you didn't recognize that verse in Psalm 110. Oh, the law is valuable and it's beautiful, but it doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't replace Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ replaces the law. Now by faith in him. So if anybody ever comes and lays that trip on you, don't accept it. If you find yourself wanting to study those things of the Jewish roots of Christianity, go for it. It's exciting. It's wonderful. The feasts, the meanings of the feasts. But remember, 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 remember. Jesus Christ, in him you have it all. In him everything is yours. Come back to Hebrews chapter 7 now. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 is one of the clearest single statements in all of the Bible that God terminated the Mosaic law. That there's a definite beginning and end. It couldn't be clearer. That's why people would gasp. For the priesthood also being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. When today, when you pray, every time you pray, you may not recognize this, but today, every time you pray in Jesus' name, that is an affirmation of the end of the law. When you say, I pray this in Jesus' name, you are acknowledging the sum total of the character and nature of Jesus Christ to come who the only man, Jesus was fully man and fully God to fulfill the law. When you pray in Jesus' name, you are saying at the same time, Jesus replaced the law. You probably never even knew that. So between Galatians chapter three, you're no longer under a tutor, faith came. Hebrews chapter seven, Galatians and Hebrews are written to those that are drawn back to the law. That's the whole reason why they're in the Bible, because many people are today. And you just kind of feel like you're missing something. You're not missing anything. You have everything in Jesus Christ. Let's close up with the rest of the chapter now. This greater priesthood. He says in verse 20, inasmuch as he was made a priest without an oath, they've become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn 
and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant, which will be our next study, a better covenant, or what we refer to today as the new covenant. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So in the old covenant, the priest died, and then a new priest would come. They couldn't serve forever. They actually had a limitation. Priests would start at about at the age of 30 and then retire from offering sacrifices at about the age 50 and then another priest would come in and there would always be a new priest because there would be an age change and there also would be, they would die. They, they would have to be replaced. So he says in verse 24, but he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Why would you leave Jesus? He's better. He's unchangeable. Therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who, to God, excuse me, therefore he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for him. Now, save is an unfortunate translation. Actually, the word should be translated complete because this isn't a statement about salvation. Jesus doesn't save you continually because he prays for you and intercedes for you. He's able to complete you and bring about that ongoing sanctification process in you because of his play. He's unchanging priest. Notice it says, for such a high priest was fitting for us. And notice Jesus in verse 26 is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Who doesn't need daily as those who high priest to offer up sacrifices first for himself and then for others because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Like he's the greatest high priest because he didn't offer an animal, he offered himself. I mean, this would be life-changing for the audience. We, we kind of take it for granted, but this would be life-changing. And it would begin to see the backdrop and the contrast. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who's been perfected forever. So a couple things before we go. Number one, the priests of the day of Jesus were far from holy. Notice, it says Jesus was a holy, harmless, undefiled, verse 26, and separate from sinners. Not so for the priests of Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, who received the greatest condemnation and words of rebuke in Jesus' day? The religious rulers. He was a friend of sinners, those that acknowledged that, and rec- but those that were taking advantage. What, what did Jesus do? He made a whip of cords and he overturned the temple, overturned the tables in the temple. Why? Because the priests were ripping people off. And so this would be another, hey, your high priest, he is holy and harmless, undefiled. He's not like the priests that are taking advantage of you, marking up the price for sacrificial animals, stealing from you, using you, not so for Jesus. Secondly, we see that Jesus doesn't have to offer for himself. He offers himself. He doesn't offer an animal. He offers himself. You see, no system No religion, no book, no seminar, no pastor, no priest, no church. No one can perfect you but Jesus Christ. No one and nothing. You have it all in him. And he's harmless and undefiled, unlike the priests of the day. You see, the Jews were bound up in their religion, and they missed it. They missed the predictability of it. They missed the formality of it. They missed the relational community aspects of it. And they were tempted to walk away from Jesus. But see, Jesus is greater than Abraham. And he's greater than Moses. 
and he's greater than Aaron, and he's greater than Levi. All the important, see those priests, priests became a priest because of the family they were born into. You couldn't be a priest unless you came through the line of Levi. But the contrast with Jesus is he's not a priest because of his family. He's a priest because God made an oath on him. He appointed him. This priesthood came directly from God the Father. And it wasn't because he was born into some family line. He's actually from the line of Judah. He's a priest not according to Aaron and Levi, but according to Melchizedek. And Paul is pointing out Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. That's the key. And you know, today people make a choice of how to follow God. They either follow God according to the line of Aaron and Levi, where they come to God with their works and their efforts and their energy, and they say, well, and then they feel guilty and condemned because they never feel good enough. And you come to them with your own works and your own efforts, and it always leads to frustration. And there are those that come to God through Jesus Christ through the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek, he represents something that's finished, that the work is already done, that we don't keep bringing sacrifices and bloody animals. Praise God we don't do that anymore. You know, that alone would say that, there, that God has made a change in his relationship with people because we have never in the life of our church ever told someone, leave your goat and lamb at the door, please. We aren't doing that anymore. No, but I read the Bible and it said to bring a sacrifice. No, no, no. You had to keep reading. Because Jesus came, <laughs> and no longer do we bring sacrifices. We, 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 most of us, never lived under the law. We, we came to faith in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. We weren't even exposed. There are a few people that are exposed first to Judaism, then the new covenant, but I would say most of us, if not all of us, came to Christ under the new covenant, believing that he offered himself that it's not your works, it's not your efforts, it's not your good deeds, it's not how good of a person you are, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ who came not according to Levi, but according to Melchizedek. And that, my friends, is chapter seven of Hebrews. I hope you understood it. I hope you chew on it. I hope you walk away going, you know, if I could teach you anything as a pastor, is don't get caught up on all the little controversies and miss Jesus. Don't get caught up. Well, who's Melchizedek? I still want to know who Melchizedek is. Well, have at it. But don't miss Jesus. Don't miss his significance. And remember, when you read, don't forget this. When you read Genesis, you'll find Jesus there. When you read Exodus, you'll find Jesus there. When you flip into, when you flip into the Psalms and you walk through the emotional ups and downs of David, you'll find Jesus there. Because he's everywhere. He's the scarlet thread throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And when you read the Bible, look for Jesus because he's your sufficiency. So Father, thank you for uh, you know, a challenging chapter for sure. Uh, not the first time that we faced a challenging chapter and won't be the last, but it's not so challenging that we can't understand that you have sent Jesus according to a greater priesthood, that there is no one greater. You've sent the perfect one to die in our place. And we submit our lives to you. And we raise our kids unto him today. And we support missionaries because of Jesus. We uh, pray for our prodigals because of Jesus. We experience great grace and forgiveness because of Jesus. And while we're curious of who Melchizedek really is, Melchizedek fades off. He didn't die for our sins. Jesus did. And may you continue to validate that in our lives. And I pray against this temptation of 
of trying to pull believers away from the simplicity of the gospel, especially with the law, where those will come today and just completely throw a guilt trip that believers aren't really following the true uh, God because we're not students of the Torah. We are students of the Torah. And over and over and over again, the Torah says, look for Jesus, look for Jesus. And then we find him and we go, ah, thank you for teaching us about faith. And now we have a vibrant relationship in Jesus Christ who now sheds light on the laws and shows us insights. So God, bless your people today. Bless those that stayed home to be safe today and warm. Thank you for technology, that we can be a church anywhere and everywhere and still gather together in Jesus' name. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you...